I'd like you to use your imagination this morning. God gave each one of us an imagination. Picture yourself in a great crowd at the temple one day. Let me read you the events that are taking place before the eyes of our imagination as they took place long ago from the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. He declared, Go now, and leave your life of sin. I know how this woman got into the presence of Jesus. She was brought there by the religious leaders of the day. I don't know why you're here today. The reasons are probably as varied as our personalities. Only you can answer that. You may be here because it's a constant source of encouragement and refreshment to you to be in the house of the Lord and be with the people of God and to see your friends and to get greeted by name and to have someone shake your hand and make you feel at home. You may be here out of habit. You may be here out of curiosity. You may be here out of the dictates of conscience. You may be running low on hope or grace or forgiveness. I don't know why you came, but I do know how you can leave. I know how every one of us can leave. We can leave with a new sense of God's grace, 
We can leave with a new sense of peace in our hearts. We can leave with a new injection of hope. We can leave to be better, not perfect, but better men and women. Students, children, than we came. That can happen if we, like this woman, meet Jesus. Those men brought her. They had caught her in the act of adultery. And they brought her to Jesus and said, we caught her. Moses says that we are to stone her to death. What do you say? Well, they were right, at least partially right. Moses did say in Deuteronomy 20.10 that committing the overt act of adultery, you were to be stoned. The, the Mishnah, which is the codified law, gave not only stoning as an option for this infraction of the law, but strangulation. The Mishnah, which was, as I say, the codified law that they lived by, said that a person caught in the act of adultery would be made to stand in dung up to their knees, and a cloth, a soft cloth, would be placed about their neck, and then around that a coarse cloth, and around that a rope stretching in both ways, looped around the neck of the person, and a man on this side and a man on that side would both begin to pull simultaneously and strangle the person to death. Serious infraction of God's law. It is interesting to note that when you read Deuteronomy 20.10, it says, the man and the woman are to be stoned to death. Surely, knowledgeable, devoted, dedicated religious men would not practice a double standard. Unthinkable that they would say to him, get out of here, we got her. And he went home to his wife. So here they say, Jesus, what do you say? They were trying to trap him. They thought they had him in a catch-22 situation because, you see, if he said, kill her, stone her, she deserves it. Then the people who thought of Jesus as a kind and compassionate and understanding man would have been disillusioned. Or, had he said that, those religious leaders could have then gone to the Roman authorities and said, he is advocating the breaking of Roman law because, because due to the fact that that land was invaded by and controlled by the Romans, only they could pronounce the final death sentence. Only they could give permission for a capital crime to be punished by death, 
And so they could go to the Roman authorities and say, Jesus is out, out there advocating breaking the Roman law. They did later accuse him of breaking the Roman law unfairly and unjustly and untruthfully. But that would have given them an opportunity to do it here. Or if he had said, and here was the other part of the trap, if he had said, let her go, forget it, then they could have said, well, he condones sin. He approves of immoral behavior. So they felt like they had him. And what does he do? He stoops down and begins to write. What did he write? It's the only thing that we have any record of Jesus ever writing. What did he write? The Greek word translated to write, grothain, to write, that's not the word he used. He put a prefix in front of it. That was a regular word to write, to describe what it meant to write. He put kata, which is a prefix meaning against. He began to write against something. That was a phrase that was used to list a record of offenses against someone. The Armenian translation of the New Testament says, on the basis of that word, he was writing the sins of the men standing there with their, the stones in their hand. Writing against, not doodling, not scribbling, cartographing. He was showing them themselves. They continued to push him. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Jesus stood up and said, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. Now the word without sin. He changed the word there from the usual word for sin, which is hamartia. He didn't use that word. He used a word that, said, that meant, let him who has never had the desire to sin cast the first stone. Let him who's never thought of doing what she did. You started. I'd love to have seen the eyes of Jesus. I believe they were probably the most compassionate eyes that we could imagine. But I wonder what his eyes looked like when he said to those men, if you've never thought about having sex with somebody besides your wife, kill her. Go ahead, stone her. If you've never thought about taking something that didn't belong to you, you never even had the desire, kill her. Oh, listen, 
Jesus is not going to let us sit back in this veneer of religious respectability and avoid dealing with what's going on way down deep inside of us. For out of the heart proceed the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Jesus is not just dealing with superficial behavior. He is dealing with them, the attitudes and the desires of our heart. If you've never even thought about doing something like this, kill her. Don't you know he got still in the temple? Quieter than it is here. And he stood back down and continued writing. And suddenly the only sound that was heard stones being dropped, beginning with the older men, it says. Isn't that interesting? Older men. Thought a lot about that. I wonder why. Well, age often mellows a person. Oh, I know some crotchety, complaining, critical old people. But most often, age tenderizes, softens our judgments. We are quicker to understand, or should be. German philosopher Goethe said, one need only to grow old to become gentler in one's judgments. I see no fault committed which I could not have committed myself. I think these older men in that group realized that if you carry a grudge, it'll kill you. If you carry a grudge, say, oh, I don't, wait a minute, Buckner, they did this to me. They did this. Oh, Lord, I'm going to harbor this hatred in my heart. They forget it. They go on, and you carry it. No, you don't carry it. It'll bury you. Those grudges you carry will be your pallbearers to a premature grave. Drop it. Drop that resentment, that anger, that bitterness, that grudge. Let it hit the floor right here today. Let him that's without ever having had a problem, a failure overtly or covertly, start throwing stones. No, let's start dropping them. 
And he stood up and looked at the woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't condemn her. He converted her. He always does that. He has come to change our heart. And the most powerful catalyst for change is forgiveness. Forgiveness. I first began to understand the power of forgiveness when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I want to tell you the story about it. I've told it before. In fact, some recently have said, Bugner, tell that story again. It's been a long time since you've told it. I always tell it when I go off to speak somewhere, a revival meeting or a conference of one kind or another, or at Laity Lodge or with students or wherever. I tell this story because it is such a meaningful one to me and helps me understand forgiveness and grace in a way I never would have understood it, I think, had this not happened to me. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home with a devoted mother and father who loved the Lord and each other and their two sons, my brother and I. But there were times in my mother's life when she was Mount Sinai, as she should have been. Thou shalt not. And she wrote it in stone. And occasionally on other parts of the human anatomy. <laughs> Thou shalt not do certain things. And one of the specific, oft-repeated prohibitions from the Mount Sinai at the corner of Mistletoe and Blair in Dallas, Texas, was thou shalt not throw the ball, baseball, football, basketball in the house. Ever. Written with fingers of fire. Thou shalt not throw the baseball, the football, the basketball. Go outside, play all you want to. Backboard up on the garage out there, vacant lot, a block away to play football, baseball, go. Not in the house. The reason is because my mother liked some degree of order. And also because she had some antiques that she wanted to preserve, which she loved dearly, and which she sacrificed and saved for uh, to provide. And... Uh, Many of them are in my home now, and many others in my brother's home in Dallas. And a number of them I cherish beyond description. Some that I didn't like at the time, I now cherish. Uh, in our living room, over in one corner of the living room, you need to get the scene here, over in one corner of the living room, the right corner of the living room, was a chair, an antique chair, a chair my mother loved. I personally thought it was the most grotesque-looking piece of furniture I've ever seen in my life. It was a three-legged chair, 
funny looking thing. Looked like it was deformed to me. Uh, and there it sat, over there in the right corner of the living room. And here's the strange thing about that chair. No one ever sat in the chair. Mother wouldn't let anybody sit in the chair. You were just supposed to stand there and kind of with bated breath say, Oh, what a beautiful chair, Mrs. Fanny. Well, there was the chair. By the way, jumping way ahead, when my mother and father both went to be with the Lord many, many years later, and my brother and I were at the home with Martha and Carolyn and, and having a very tender, emotional, and yet happy time dividing up all of the, uh, the things that belonged to our parents. Um, we were sitting there on the floor talking and dividing all this up. And my brother didn't want the chair. I didn't want the chair, but neither one of us wanted to hurt mother's feelings. <laughs> so I said, well, Bob, I'll take the chair. He said, oh, Buckner, I wanted it, but okay. Uh, <laughs> you can have the chair. So we have the chair, don't we, Martha? It sits in our atrium at our home. Guess what? You're right. Nobody ever sits in that chair. No sirree, you don't sit there. As someone has said, the fruit very seldom falls very far from the tree. That's right. Boy, I picked it up. Don't sit in that chair. We just stand there and go, oh, there it is. The other corner of the living room, left corner of the living room, was a vase, an antique vase, hand-painted, about this tall, beautiful hand-painted vase with a brass base to it and a brass uh, lip at the top and handle. Beautiful vase. My brother and I were standing at the, on our back porch, screened-in back porch, on a Saturday morning, pouring down rain, wanting to go throw the baseball. Couldn't go outside, pouring down rain. I was the pitcher on our neighborhood team because I owned the baseball. <laughs> and I wanted to warm up this old trusted right arm. My brother was standing there with a catcher's mitt. Bob, I, four and a half, five, five years younger than I am, standing there. I said, boy, mother was in the kitchen working, fixing supper. There was that living room, dining room. I mean, perfect. The, back, the distance from the back of the dining room to the back of the living room, one big room there, was almost the distance from pitcher's mound to home plate. Didn't mother know that? <laughs> oh, no baseball. Sign I said, no baseball throwing in the house. Bob stood there, and I stood there, and I said, boy, Bob, I'd sure like to go throw that ball. And he said, yeah, I know, I would too. He said, you know, Mother knows it's raining. And she's in the kitchen working. Why, why don't we go in there and just kind of run a test here and see. Let's go in there and throw the ball in the living room. And if she says no, if Sinai, Sinai thunders, well, we'll, we'll stop. But maybe she will relent and let us do it. I said, that's a good idea, Bob. Now, I need to parenthetically insert here the fact that my brother is now an attorney, <laughs> and he gets paid money for giving advice like that. <laughs> you tell me there's justice in the world. No way. Anyway, we went in there. He got down the other end of the living room, chair on one side, vase on the other. I'm back up at the other end of the dining room, mother right next door in the kitchen. And he said, what are you going to throw? Kind of a subdued voice. What are you going to throw? I said, I'm going to throw a fastball. Warm up a little bit. 
I backed up and I wound up and I threw that pitch. Oh, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, Nolan Ryan never threw a better. It was right down the groove, had a little hump on it. It was a great pitch. It hit the back of that glove, pow! And we both froze. We waited for Sinai to erupt. <laughs> Sinai didn't speak. Bob threw it back and kind of winked as if to say, I thought maybe she didn't hear it, so let's try it again. I threw a couple more fastballs right down the middle, right in that glove. We're kind of relaxing. Well, Mother's going to make, you know, an exception. She knows it's raining. We can throw the ball in the house. So he said, what are you going to try now, Buckner? And I said, well, Bob, I think I'll try a little of my breaking stuff. I'll throw you a curve. So I went up, and I threw that ball, and I turned that thing over, and it broke all right. It broke so far, my brother leaped for it, missed it a foot, and didn't even come close to catching it, but i tell you who did catch it. You know. We laugh now. <laughs> the vase caught it, and I mean it caught it full force. It hit that vase, and it exploded. It, it blew into a thousand pieces. My noble, devoted brother ran out the back door like a scared <laughs> rabbit. Just disappeared, left the scene of the crime. I rushed over there and I thought, if I can go in there and get that glue that we used to make model airplanes, I can put this thing back together and Mother will never know the difference. Maybe she didn't hear it. Hear it, it was like an automobile crash. And the vase was irreparable. It was gone. And I, I stood there, and it seemed like I stood there forever. It, there it was. I had known what to do, what not to do, I'd been told repeatedly, and here it is. I finally got enough courage to walk into the kitchen. My mother's back was to me because she was working at the sink, and I came in behind her. She knew I was there, and I stood there again for what seemed like forever. And I want you to know I have never felt more repentant than I did then. I have felt as repentant, but never more. And I finally said, Mother, I broke your vase, and I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And she stopped working and turned around and looked at me and smiled. Not a word, just smiled. Turned back around, went back to work. Never said a word for 10 years never mentioned it. Never. I walked out and then mentioned it in a way I will describe in a moment. I walked out of the kitchen. I ran into my rain-soaked brother. <laughs> and he said, Buckner, what happened? 
I said, Bob, I don't know. I really didn't know. But time and perspective helped me to understand what had happened to me. I had been forgiven. And a smile did what Sinai could never do. Love can do what the law can never do. I know that. The years went by, graduated from high school, three years in the service, home, college, felt God calling me into the ministry. Went home for Christmas one year. Big package under the tree for Buckner, for Mother. Couldn't imagine. I was anxious to get to it. And I opened it. And it was a vase. It had taken her years. Finally, finding one in an antique store in New Orleans a vase that would actually fit perfectly. It could have been a companion piece. The brass fittings, the base, and the top. More beautiful than the one I broke. And she gave that to me. The only word ever said about the event was a word of restoration, renewal, forgotten, forgiven. I've never thrown a baseball in the house since. Not because of Sinai, but because of a smile. Not because I was stoned by the law, but because I was saved by grace. Now listen, it's just you and Jesus face to face right now. Maybe a lot of other folks around, but it's just the two of you face to face, as it was with that woman and Jesus in the temple that day, that huge crowd standing around. But at that moment, it was as intensely personal with her as it is with me and you right now. And he looks at you and he says, who's condemning you? Well, my heart's condemning me. One of the best verses of Scripture in the Bible and one of Martha's favorite. If your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Your heart doesn't condemn you. Others, I take the accusation and the condemnation of the law for you. Your sins are forgiven. I do not condemn you. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, 
accepted. It's given, but it's useless unless accepted. Accepted. And go in peace. Drop the stones of resentment and bitterness and go in peace. I want to stand right here to welcome, as in the earlier service, many came, trusting the Lord for prayer, to be a part of the life and fellowship of this church. Give your heart to Christ. Give all those resentments and bitterness to him. Drop them, forget them. All that condemnation of self, all of that judgment you think is hanging over your head, all of the fire of Sinai, is gone in the cooling waters of the water of life and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him and follow him today. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.